0: We will be continuing our series this morning, The Work of Christ. Last Sunday, we looked at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the implications of that, what it means. This morning, we're going to look at resurrection. I'm going to use the same method this morning that I used last week, uh, in that we're not going to look at the resurrection event itself, but at its effects upon believers, um, Also, I'm not going to take one particular passage and expound that. Um, We're going to be primarily centered on 1 Corinthians 15, which is really kind of the definitive passage on resurrection. I think, you know, if if you were to take all of the Bible and single out a chapter or some verses, I mean, that one seems to say more about that subject than any other chapter or anything else. And so we're going to kind of be moving around in that chapter, And so we're going to come at this message a little more topically, like make a point and then read a verse and then expound. So it'll be a little different than how we've been doing it, but uh, I'm praying that the Lord blesses you and uh, teaches you a thing or two as he has me this week. Uh, I think it's befitting to pray one more time before we uh, enter into God's word here. Father, we uh, just humble ourselves and ask that you would quiet our nerves and our spirits in such a way that we can be attentive um, and just listening uh, to the word and learning from it and we pray that you'd send the Holy Spirit in power uh, that we would be transformed by the word and uh, teach us about the resurrection today maybe something about it that we have yet to learn. Uh, And if it's something that we've already learned, then just fortify our faith with it again. Just may it be a repetition in something that just kind of reaffirms what we already know. Uh, But we do pray that you'd be glorified and honored during this time of teaching. And um, we just pray for your will in our hearts and lives this morning. Be glorified here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when Jesus cried out, it is finished and yielded his spirit up to the Father. He was truly dead. He was truly dead. His spirit left his body and went to be with the Father. So the body he left behind was a corpse. Like any other corpse, there was no heartbeat, uh, there were no brain waves. Uh, there was no blood pulsating through his veins. Jesus was dead, and as, uh, and as a, a dead man in his humanity, he was utterly powerless to do any significant work. He did not raise himself from the dead, and I think that some of you would say, well, I'm not sure if that statement's accurate, because I recall him saying something to the effect of that I lay down my life and I raise it up again. Uh, But what he was not insinuating there is that he is going to raise himself up. It just means that he was humbling himself to lay himself down and that he would be taken back up. In Romans 8.11, Paul tells us that the Father raised Christ through the Holy Spirit. So it's the work of the Father through the Holy Spirit in raising Christ from the dead. But I would say that it might seem a bit strange then to include the resurrection of Christ in a study of his work, given that he was completely passive in his resurrection. Right? I mean, if he's laying in a tomb and he doesn't raise himself, then how is he responsible for work that's being done there? And so I just thought, well, you know, if you're going to talk about the resurrection, it's kind of interesting when you would tie that to his work when he was passive. So how was he working? That's kind of the idea. And I would say, nevertheless, the resurrection was a vitally important part of the work that he accomplished, and I would say more so through the resurrection. So let's begin to look at some of the things that he did accomplish through it. And I have for you this morning just four very basic points, very basic things that he accomplished through it. And like I said, we're going to handle this a little more topically. So we can go right to number one. Have your pens and notes ready. The first thing is that Christ brings life through his resurrection. Or another way to put it would be that life is associated with his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-26 says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God um, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And it says in verse 25... For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Adam and Eve sinned, their penalty for their sin was death. Okay? Death is the penalty for sin. What did the devil say to them as he was tempting them and deceiving them? Did God say you shall surely die? God had said that you will die if you eat of this fruit. And so the penalty for sin is death. And this death penalty has been passed down to all their progeny, which would be all of humanity, every person who has come through their bloodline, so to speak. You and I. As it says in Romans 6.23... The wages of sin is death. Okay, so when you sin, or as a sinner, what that sin brings about is death. And we could say that it is a spiritual death, obviously, but it is a physical death as well. Sin does bring physical death. That's why we have death in the world. But you must understand something vitally important. Death only has power and I would say the power to hold and to keep, it only has this great grievous power over sinners. Because it is the sinner's curse. It is the sinner's punishment. So, death had no power over Christ because he was not a sinner, was he? So it is true that Christ did bear or he bore the sins of the world on the cross, right? When he was on the cross, we even talked about it last week, we talked about imputation, he's on the cross and he takes our sin upon his own body and he transfers his righteousness to us. But the fact that he bore our sins on the cross doesn't mean that he became a sinner. A sinner by definition is one who sins. Did Christ sin? No. By taking our sins upon his own body, he did not become a sinner like you and I. No, he became the object of God's wrath, but his own personal innocence, sanctity, righteousness, was unaffected. Since he was innocent of sin, death had no hold on him whatsoever. And this is why Acts 2.24 says... It was impossible for him, speaking of Christ, to be held by death. There's the connection. Now, this is where it gets truly astonishing. Since death had no hold on Christ... Okay, he certainly died a horrific physical death, but he didn't stay dead. And that's what I mean when I say that death had no hold on him. Since death had no hold on Christ... It will also have no hold on those who are in Christ by grace through faith. That's a great truth. That is probably the best truth that you will hear this morning. Because if you are not in Christ, death will hold you. If you are in Christ, it will not keep you. It will not hold you. God does not see believers... As sinners who need to be punished with perpetual, constant, eternal death. He doesn't see us that way. He sees us as adopted children whom he desires to bless. So Christ, the second Adam, and that's what Paul is talking about in the text I just read. Christ, the second Adam, through his resurrection, yielded up life for those who believe. In other words, they may die a physical death before the Lord's return, but they're not going to stay dead. They're not going to stay separated from God in a spiritual way, and they're certainly not going to stay separated from Him in a physical way at the resurrection. Christ, through His resurrection, as He rose, He yielded up life for those who believe. Resurrection life. Eternal life. Believers will share in His resurrection and experience it personally. We will be raised just as Christ was raised from the tomb. And this is why 1 Corinthians 15.55 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's what we just sang. For For believers, death has no sting because through the resurrection, Christ removed its stinger. It's almost like death is a wasp. And it has the stinging power. And you know, if you were to survey people and ask them about their greatest fear, number one on the list is, I am afraid of what's going to happen when I die. That is the thing that cripples people. They are so afraid of death. Death is a horrifying thing. And yet, for the believer, because of Christ's resurrection, he has totally removed the sting of it because we know the truth about death. It ain't going to hold us. It's not going to keep us in a tomb. I really like how Matthew Henry put it. He says, All the saints should not die, but all would be changed. In the gospel, many truths before, hidden in mystery, are now made known. Death never shall appear in the regions to which our Lord will bear his risen saints. Therefore, let us seek the full assurance of faith and hope that in the midst of pain and in the, in the prospect of death, We may think calmly on the horrors of the tomb, assured that our bodies will there sleep. And in the meantime, our souls will be present with the Redeemer. What he's saying is that when the believer dies, his spirit goes to be with the Lord, right? To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And yet that body is not going to stay in that tomb, It will be raised. And so when we are faced with difficulty or sickness or illness or the threat of death, it really isn't a threat. We truly lose nothing when we pass on. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26, we see Christus victor. That's Latin for Christ the victor, who triumphed not only over Satan, and sin, but also over the supreme enemy that afflicts human life, death. But that victory was not simply for himself. Paul wrote that he became the firstfruits, so that in the resurrection, God not only raised Christ from the dead, but will raise, also raise all who are in Christ, so that we participate in that triumph over death. And yet, for those who remain in Adam, there is no victory over death. Unbelievers will experience resurrection, but not unto life as believers will, but unto more death. At the great white throne judgment, um, which is to come in the future, unbelievers will be raised. And they will be judged. In fact, they're referred to in in Revelation 20 as the dead. The dead, they're not dead in Christ. They're not just dead apart from Christ. They're unbelievers. They will be raised. They will be judged. And they will be sentenced to what is called the second death. Apparently, there's another form of death that is a punishment. That is a sentence that is bestowed upon unbelievers. And it has to do with being thrown into the lake of fire. Now that just sounds horrible. And that's Revelation 20, 14 through 15. This is another reason why we should be diligent in sharing the gospel with those around us. That they might not suffer, stay dead, and suffer the second death and the lake of fire and these sorts of things. Which the Bible says paints with such vivid imagery and such horrific imagery that we minimize it on this side of glory because we just, it just doesn't seem like it'd be all that bad. Life can be really bad, but I'm not sure if hell is really all that bad. And it is the worst imaginable thing. It is beyond our imagination how terrible it is. I think that the most frightening thing about hell isn't the devil and pitchforks and all that stuff, which is probably more fairy tale than anything. That's more Dante's Inferno than anything else. I think the most horrifying and frightening thing about hell is the fact that God, who is all-present, is there executing judgment. You see, the unbeliever is separated from God in a saving way, and in a joy way, and in a peace way, but they're still in his presence for eternity, being tormented by him. It's not like the devil rules hell. Hell is a place of punishment for him as well, is what it teaches in Scripture. We always think of, well, that's his real kingdom. No, his kingdom's this earth. Hell is a place of torment for the devil. Who is there tormenting the devil? God. Who will be there tormenting unbelievers? God, in his Hebrews 10, wrath. That's what makes hell so frightening. As it says in Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We should never take that lightly. And when you, when you interact with people, if you discover that they don't know Christ, you should proclaim Christ as best you can. Show your example. Live it out before them. It's not something that we would wish on our worst enemy. We certainly do at times when we're frustrated, but let me tell you, if we really understood the gravity of hell, we would never say such things. Second thing Christ brings life, right, through his resurrection. Second thing, Christ brings justification through his resurrection. He brings justification through his resurrection. We talked about justification quite a bit last week. We'll talk about it a little bit more today. Romans 4, 24 through 25. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In verse 24, Paul points to Abraham who believed God and was called righteous by God. That's what it means to be justified. He then parallels Abraham's example to those who exercise the same faith, those who believe God. If we believe in the same God Abraham believed in, the one who raised Christ from the dead, we too will be called righteous by God, we too will be justified. You see, justification is by faith alone. But what is the faith in? It is in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is critical to our justification. If we reject that particular event in doctrine, we're not justified. That's why the resurrection is so critical and key to the Christian faith. And I would say that it is the most contested of all the doctrines. It is the one that is most difficult to get our minds around. When, when people think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a dead man who rose, who never rise, they equate it to Jonah and the whale. There's no way Jonah was swallowed by a real fish. That's got to be a metaphor. There's no way Jesus really came out of the tomb. That's got to be a metaphor for something. But the fact of the matter is, is that if he doesn't rise and we don't believe in him being risen, we are not justified. We are not declared righteous. Paul says our faith is futile. Our message is rubbish. In verse 25, Paul points to the cross where Christ paid for our trespasses. Trespasses mean sins. And to the resurrection where Christ was raised for our justification. What does it mean to be raised for justification or for our justification? Or I would just say raised for justification. Well the resurrection is really god's stamp of approval that he accepted christ's sacrifice on our behalf how do we know if god the father accepted the work of christ on the cross how do we know that we know that he died on there we know that the in fact it gets even worse when you consider that the father turned away from him that sounds like a rejection how do we know if the Father actually accepted the work of Christ through his life, through his death on the cross? How do we know? We know by the resurrection. That's how we know. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval that he accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. The resurrection is a type of declaration from the Father to the Son and to the world. Through raising Him, the Father said, I not only accept your sacrifice, but I declare that you and your work are completely righteous. You did exactly what you planned to do. The resurrection was God's way of vindicating the injustice that Christ suffered on our behalf. Because He was an innocent man. He did not deserve to die. We deserve to be on the cross, not Him. The resurrection is a vindication. It's bringing him back to life to show that you are innocent. You maintained your innocence, and I accept your sacrifice. It is, a, it is also a way of, of justifying Christ, declaring that he is righteous and what he did is acceptable. If we believe that Christ was raised on our behalf, then we receive the same vindication. You're not guilty for your sin, and we receive the same justification. You're righteous because you're in Christ. You believe from the Father. We, too, are declared righteous. That's how justification is tied to the resurrection. As Wayne Grudem explains, when the Father, in essence, said to Christ, all the penalty for sins has been paid for, and I find you not guilty, but righteous in my sight, He was thereby making the declaration that would also apply to us once we trusted in Christ for salvation. In this way, Christ's resurrection also gave proof that he had earned our justification. If God had not raised Christ from the dead, he would essentially be saying, I am not satisfied with your atoning work on behalf of sinners. If this were the case, we would still be in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if we are still in our sins, then we're still dead, and we will one day stand guilty before a holy God unjustified and condemned. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this, If it is not a fact that Christ literally rose from the grave, then you are still guilty before God. Your punishment has not been born. Your sins have not been dealt with. You are yet in your sins. It matters that much. Without the resurrection, you have no standing at all. I'd say, yeah, you have a standing. Your standing is guilty, not righteous. So Christ brings death, or brings conquers death. He brings life through the resurrection. He brings justification through the resurrection. Those are two vitally important things. Third, Christ brings imperishability through His resurrection. Imperishability. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. When Christ appears in the clouds and raptures his church, Those who are alive in Christ, believers at that time that are still alive, they haven't passed away, believers who are alive in Christ shall join him in the air. They shall be joined with him, just taken right off the earth. And those who are dead in Christ, those who have passed away, believers who have passed away, many of our relatives and what have you, if he shall come while we're still alive, those who are dead in Christ shall be raised and then they will join him as well. That's what we call the rapture. He comes and the church is raptured or taken off the earth and joined with him. And it says forever. This is the moment when Christ will remove his people from the earth and the tribulation period will begin. When the seals are open, when the trumpets are blown, and when the bold judgments are poured out upon the earth, God's wrath is inflicted upon all the living. Revelation 6 through 16. You can read those chapters. It talks about this in incredible detail. Every believer at this point will be joined with Christ and will be given a resurrection body. Okay, those who are dead in Christ are raised with a resurrection body. Those who ascend up to Him, who are alive, are transformed right into this glorious body. So all receive a resurrection body. That is the resurrection. We will all receive a resurrection, glorious body at that moment, and Paul calls it imperishable in our text. What does he mean by imperishable? Well, move over to verses 42 through 44 of chapter 15, and I will explain what he means along with several other things. Here, Paul contrasts our old bodies with our new glorified bodies or our resurrection bodies. 42 says, so is it with the resurrection of the dead? Okay, so here's how it is with the resurrection of the dead. He says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. He's talking about the old and the new. What is sown in dishonor, that's the old, is it will be raised in glory, that's the new. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This is a fantastic passage where Paul describes the resurrection body, the bodies that all of those who are in Christ are going to receive. Now the first contrast that he makes has to do with durability. One of the most obvious characteristics of all natural life, including human life, is that it is perishable. I saw an incredible example of this yesterday in my backyard, because I have a cat that kills everything. It was just the strangest thing. I noticed in a rose bush that's behind this little short fence that we have, there was a little bird fluttering around in there, and I don't know if it had an injured wing or if it was just a baby and got out of its nest, and it was back there, and I thought, that's cute. You know, I hope the cat doesn't notice it. And, uh, and the cat, you know, it's been 100 degrees, so the cat's been sandbagging under the table. It's laying there for like a week. I checked it. Are you alive? Are you alive? you know and wouldn't you know i came back out 2 hours later and there was a bloody pile of pulp and it was the bird and i thought dang you cat why did you do that you know and it's just looking at me like it's what i do and i just thought what a great illustration life is perishable of course that's bird murder you know this is one of the most obvious characteristics of, of natural life, whether it be human life or animal life or plant life or any kind of life, is that it is perishable. It is subject to deterioration and eventual death. Even in the healthy infant, the process of aging and deterioration has begun. We tend to think of babies as, well, you know, now they've got to grow up and they've got to mature. That's all part of dying, If they stayed a baby, they'd be cool. Well, not really. Because then you'd have to deal with them all the time in the baby way. But we think of, you know, oh, he's young, he's growing and all that. Well, that's part of the aging process. And actually, it's like, it's kind of part of deterioration in a way when we think it's more progression. But really, it's part of natural life and the deterioration. Of course, we feel that a little bit more when you start getting a little older. Even the healthy infant is in the process of aging and deterioration. Even the healthiest of people, as they get older, become weaker and more subject to disease and various physical problems. Maybe you're wondering why my wife isn't here today. Well, didn't feel well for two days. Sore throat. You know? She's just like, I hate getting older. It's like, yeah, wait till you're 46. Uh, Anyone else have body cramps? I've got all the stamina in the world. I could run like a marathon, but I tell you what, after about two miles, everything feels like it's going to break. My knees start hurting. I don't know why my elbows hurt. Maybe it's because you're going like this. And I really make sure I do this because I'm wearing a Fitbit? That exercise has to count, you know? I probably just got four steps right there. It's beautiful. You know what I'm saying, right, Bruce? right, right, yeah, yeah, you get two minutes in, yeah, Uh, this is, this is the way that it is, this is, this is how it, how it works, we become weaker, and more subject to disease, and, and I take, you know, vitamins galore, and it still seems like I get these bugs all the time, and Gosh, we got one of those dreadful recording calls from Costco. If you bought the Nature Valley nut bars, be careful because they contain Las Plagas. You'll die in 24 hours. And I'm like, I ate half a dozen of those things. I'm on my way out. There was a time where we bought these frozen berries there, and they were delicious. And we put them on ice cream and all that. And about a month later, we got a call, and like, you know, they contain hepatitis. And of course, my wife, you know, automatically assumed that she had it. She was all chipper and all of a sudden, (coughs) you know, total hypochondriac, right? And I'm like, I'm okay. And then I started thinking about it and got mental, you know, we had to go down there and get shots, you know, and then we found out, they actually didn't disclose all of it in the recording. They disclosed that, uh, that the, uh, the berries had come from somewhere in India and it was because of feces. I didn't care about hepatitis. I was upset because I might've ate I was blown out. I was like, ah, are you kidding me? I mean, these are all effects of the fall and the deterioration, and, you know, they're, they're, they're just examples of that. We're weaker, and we're more subject to disease, and, and, and easily more subject to mistakes and failure and all this stuff, physical problems. As I said earlier, one of the tragic consequences of the fall was that men's bodies From that time on, we're irreversibly mortal and subject to death. Without exception, every human being is sown, that is, born with a perishable body. But the resurrection body of the believer will be raised imperishable. Paul was no doubt thinking about the body that came out of Jesus' tomb on that awesome Sunday. That body could never suffer decay or corruption in the flesh because it was raised imperishable, speaking that of the Lord. Likewise, when our bodies are raised to new life at the resurrection, they will never again deteriorate. They will never again be subject to the ravages of time and disease and bad Costco berries. Well, the second contrast he makes in this text has to do with value and potential. At the fall, man's potential for pleasing and serving God was radically reduced. I mean, prior to the fall, it was on. After the fall, eh. The creature that was made perfect and in the very image of his Creator was made to manifest His Creator in all that He did. But through sin, that which was created to honor God became characterized by dishonor. Right? He says, what is sown in dishonor? That is the natural birth and the natural person. Our bodies are sown in, disarmor, or in, in dishonor. We dishonor God by our inability to take, full, to take fully advantage of what He has given us in His creation. That's one way that we do it. We dishonor God by misusing and abusing the bodies through which He desires us to honor and serve Him. Even the most faithful believer dies with his body in a state of dishonor, a state of imperfection, a state of incompleteness. But that imperfect and dishonored body will one day be raised in glory. You see it there in verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. That's the natural state. It is raised in glory. That's the resurrection body. What a difference. Throughout all eternity, our new immortal bodies will also be honorable bodies, perfected for pleasing and praising and enjoying the Creator who made them and the Redeemer who restored them. Christ. Now, the third contrast has to do with ability. It has to do with ability. Our present bodies are characterized by weakness. By weakness. We are weak not only in physical strength and endurance, but also in resistance to disease and harm. But not so with our new bodies, which will be raised in power. And this is that dunamis, dynamite power of God. That Holy Spirit raising Christ from the dead power. Our bodies will have this kind of power. We're raised in this sort of power. God's power. Now we are not told what this power will entail, but it will be immeasurable compared to what we now possess. There's no doubt about that. Martin Luther said this about our old and new bodies as weak as it is now without all power and ability when it lies in the grave just so strong will it eventually become when the time arrives so that not a thing will be impossible for it if it has the mind for it and it will be so light and agile that in an instant it can float here below on earth or above in heaven I thought, well, that's a crazy statement. It sounds really good. It sounds kind of like the sci-fi channel. We'll just think of how Christ exhibited these sorts of things after he was raised. He was on the Damascus Road one moment, and then the very next moment. He didn't have to get on on BART and travel there. And the very next moment, he's in the upper room. He's here. He's there. He appears to 500. He appears to this guy and that guy. I mean, he had this power. This body was so powerful that he could do these things. And I'm talking about as a man, I'm talking about incarnation here because as God, he is in all places and all these things at the time. But as a human being with a glorified body, he had these new great abilities. What Martin Luther says isn't far-fetched at all. It's the absolute truth. You know, I think that's going to be really cool. In fact, I can't even imagine what that will be like to be able to think of something and to be there. Of course, it's all for God's glory and in service to him. The fourth and final contrast has to do with the sphere or realm of existence. The sphere or realm of existence. Our earthly body is strictly natural or physical, if you will, which means that it is suited for and limited to the physical world. I mean, we'd all admit that we have certain limitations and uh, yeah, so much so that we cannot transcend this natural world. The closest we can get to is to get on a rocket and fly into space. Now, I'd say even with the imperfections and limitations caused by the fall, our present bodies are wonderfully and fearfully made for life on earth. We don't want to infer or imply that that our bodies are not satisfactory or insufficient for life on earth. God has made us for this. And even after the fall, they're still suitable to a degree. But the natural realm is the only realm and only living for which these physical natural bodies are suited for. In other words, we cannot transcend this realm and go into another realm which exists. The new body of the believer, however, will be raised, as he said, a spiritual body. Now, he's not talking about believing in Christ or the faith component here. He's talking about a spiritual realm. Our bodies will be tailored for that realm. And many people deny the existence of that realm because they deny the existence of evil or they deny the existence of holiness. But it's not hard to look around and to see what's going on and to see how people are controlled by certain things and darkness and all that. I was having a conversation with somebody the other night about demon possession and I think that it's a real stretch to just flat out deny the existence of a spiritual realm. It's pretty obvious. This isn't it. And our new bodies will be fashioned for the spiritual realm. Our spirits now reside in natural bodies. That's what's going on. But one day they will reside in spiritual bodies. In every way we will then be spiritual beings. Not just in faith and, and believing in God and being a spiritual person in terms of being tied to God and being a Christian and all that. But in every way, even in our physical form, we will take on the spiritual. In both spirit and body, we will be perfectly suited for heavenly living. And I think that we tend to think of heaven as being kind of this invisible place, and it's where invisible spirits will reside there. That is the case now, but at some point, it will be made physical. That is the new kingdom that will be established for Christ and for God on earth when God redoes all this stuff and we have the everlasting kingdom, it is a physical place with physical people who are also spiritual and who aren't limited by the natural. It is a physical place, just as physical as this is now. It's not just we float off to the by and by and we float around like Casper or a cherub on a cloud darting people. You love hair; Those are make-believe things. It will be a physical place with physical people. Now, you just think of Jesus in that glorified body. He was full spirit, but he was full man. He didn't lose his incarnation. He didn't lose his humanity. In fact, when Thomas said, I'm not sure if it's you, what did he show him? The holes in his hands? The hole in his side? His physical body wasn't taken away. When you go to see Jesus, even before the resurrection, you are going to see Jesus, God, and Jesus, the man. You will be standing in the presence of a man. And I don't think he's going to look like Sven, the Swedish downhill skier, like all the movies make him look like. He's going to look Jewish. So this this is a spiritual thing, and it's a physical thing. Heaven right now is a spiritual realm, but it will be made a physical realm. And we will exist there physically at the resurrection. It's now a physical thing. Our spirits are joined with our glorified bodies. That's going to be fantastic. In every way, we will then be spiritual beings in both spirit and body, perfectly, perfectly suited for heavenly living. I mean, if you're going to exist with God and Christ and and his kingdom, and even when it comes to earth, you've got to be suited for that kind of living. And right now, we are not. Not fully. Not until the resurrection. And that leads us to the fourth and final point. I love it when I have this much time left because, you know, I've been going over on these things and I'm, I'm probably cursing myself right now because for some reason I tend to go long when I say this. So strike those last remarks. Pause the recorder. No, don't do that. Fourth and final point. Christ brings, and I think this is so key and critical, Christ brings image restoration through his resurrection image restoration through his resurrection Speaking of the resurrection Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15:49 Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust speaking of Adam we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven Christ Ah oh, this is good Adam and Eve were the original Image bearers of God. It says in Genesis 1.27, God created them in what? His image. Okay, this means that God created humanity, Adam and Eve, first in a likeness to his own image. He's a triune God, we're triune beings. We have a spirit, we have emotion, we have a physical body. He created us in his image. It doesn't mean that we look exactly like him, No one has ever looked upon God directly. They would die. And God is spirit, it says in Scripture. But it means that we bear a likeness to Him. We have some of the same capacities that He has. And as the original image bearers prior to the fall, they were like God in many ways. They were without sin, they were righteous, they were holy, they were perfect. And some would even question their perfection to say, well, they ended up sinning, so maybe they weren't created perfect. No, you don't understand what scripture teaches in Genesis. It says that they were deceived. They weren't uh, in, in any sort of way predisposed to sin. They were absolutely perfect, and yet they were deceived. They were deceived into believing a lie, which is the devil's primary tactic with deceiving people. They were absolutely perfect and without sin and righteous and holy. And these are some of the ways that they bore the image of God. And their job, their task was to exercise dominion. Basically God's sovereignty in a way as these little beings that represent Him. They were to exercise His sovereignty in a sense or His authority on earth for Him for the ultimate purpose of reflecting His glory to all creation. In a sense, they were kind of the crowning achievement of creation. And that's crazy to think that you're talking about the whole universe and all the stars and all the galaxies and solar systems. And yet, you know, toward the end of it, you create man and woman. Or you create man first, then woman after for the whole purpose of glorifying you. As They're the image bearers. The stars don't bear his image. The earth doesn't bear his image. They bear his power. They testify to that. It says in Romans 1. The only image bearers, not even the animals, bear the image of God. It is us. It is human beings. It is Adam and Eve. Like the crowning achievement of creation. I've created all this beauty and splendor, and it's all really here to glorify me, but I created you, Adam and Eve, for expressing that in a way that nothing else in creation can. And yet when they disobeyed God, when they sinned, they took on a different image. They took on the image of the very serpent who had deceived them, the devil. In a sense, the devil became their lower case g, God. God. They forsook the God who created them and began to listen to this little minuscule created being who deceived them and who became their authority. This distortion, this new image, has also, along with their sin, been passed down to all their progeny, you and I. All of humanity bears the image of the evil one. You just think about that for a moment. Again, Dante's Inferno, that really interesting poem, has caused us to view the devil as being a despicably ugly, nasty, wretched creature, and yet the scripture says that he's beautiful. He's a handsome devil. He ain't ugly. All of Humanity bears the image of the evil one. We can bear his image and not look like red devils with tails and pitchforks. Well, you can't look like him because I've seen pictures of him. He's got little red hooved feet, and that's not him. Not according to scripture. You just think about how we bear the image of the evil one as fallen people. What? People live like the devil? No faith total enemy of God, can't stand him, do all they can to suppress the light and the truth, it says again in Romans 1. People live like the devil. People act like the devil. Relationally, they destroy each other. I've been involved in that. People worship like the devil, right? As they worship themselves. You want to define devil worship? Worship yourself. Or you could even put it like this. Again, Romans 1. Worship created things. That's devil worship. Worship your spouse. Worship your job. Worship some kind of false deity. Worship money. Worship sex. Worship power. That's what the devil does. That's why he got the boot out of heaven. All of humanity bears the image of the evil one. And I would say it's not a passive thing in that Adam and Eve transferred that to us. How dare they, wait a minute, evaluate your own life. How do you worship him and act like him? You're culpable for your own sin and your own behavior. You can't blame it on them. You can't stand before God. Well, I just didn't know what they did. Eh. We're all culpable for our sin. People live, act, worship. They act like the devil because, in essence, they have taken on his image. And yet part of God's redemptive plan is to restore humanity to its proper image, to his image, so that it can do what it was created to do. What? Reflect his glory to all creation. Hebrews 1 3 says of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. Basically, what the author of Hebrews is saying, when you look at Christ, you see God. That's exactly God. One of the reasons why Jesus told the Pharisees and other religious leaders that you claim to know God, yet you deny me, therefore you don't know God. Why? Because I'm God. Christ, the second Adam, bears the precise image of God when you see Jesus you see God he bears the image of God the way that Adam did before the fall but even more so because he has a glorified body and because he is God this is one of the reasons why the scripture keeps pointing to Jesus as the second Adam it's like Jesus goes back and does what Adam could not do and did not do as the image bearer he fulfills that and all these things And Christ is the person by whom God restores His image to humanity. I'll say it again. I will say it again. Christ is the person by whom God restores His image to this broken, shattered, jacked up, demon-worshipping world. All these people. This is how He does it. He does it through Christ. It is those who enter Christ by grace through faith who shed the marred, nasty image of the devil, of Satan, and take on the image of Christ who is the image of God. You see how you take back on the image of God through Christ who Himself is the image of God? It comes through Christ. But the final thrust of this image restoration will happen during the rapture because that is when the resurrection of believers will take place and that's what we read earlier 1st Thessalonians 4:16 through 17 that's why I had her read that to you that's when the image will become fully restored because that's when we're resurrected in given bodies that again emulate perfectly God's image It's not until then that we will begin or to, period, bear the full image of God again. We've got to get taken out of this state, this physical, natural state, and be transferred and brought back into what we were in Adam, in a sense, before the fall. And yet I would say it's much greater than that because Adam and Eve, their bodies were glorious, but they weren't like the ones we're going to receive. And they're actually going to receive them as well, and they're longing for that day right now. You could say that believers bear the image of God in a spiritual sense right now. But it won't be until the resurrection that they will bear it physically because that is when his perfection, his, imp- his total and absolute perfection where, where there's no corruption or any of that, totally perfect, his perfection and his glory will be fully restored to us. That's when we will become most like Christ who most glorifies the Father? Now, this is good stuff, man. This is what's coming for you if you're in Christ. I know Bruce is really excited. He's ready. Well, just hold up. He's not ready to go now. We've been asking and answering this question each week What does the resurrection have to do with the work of Christ? We've been asking it in a similar way about the crucifixion and the, you know, these other things, the triumphal entry. What does, let's ask it again, what does the resurrection have to do with the work of Christ? He was totally passive, dead in the tomb. He didn't do anything, did he? What did you just learn? What has he brought forth through it? It is through the resurrection that Christ brings life. And I would say, yes, spiritual life, but also physical life, eternal life. Eternal life isn't just spiritual life forever, it is also physical life forever in the presence of God and in all joy and elation. He brings life, he brings justification, he brings an imperishable body, and he brings the restoration of the image of God for all who believe. That is what is accomplished through the resurrection, and I would say as a disclaimer, so much more than that. My question to you this morning is this. Where is your hope? Who or what have you put your hope in? Just think about it. I don't need to move on real quick here. What have you put your hope in? I want you to seriously assess yourself right now. Because everyone in here, the immediate default answer is Christ if you showed me your checkbook, I might tell you otherwise. If, I, if there was a secret camera following you around and you didn't know about it, somebody might be able to say, I'm not sure their hope is in Christ. You, you darn well would be able to do that of me. Because I got all the right answers, so it's in Christ. We are, we're all trained. Let's see. Time to use Christianese. Where's your hope? your lifestyle, your way of thinking will show where your hope is. Where's it at? If, if, if people blow you out consistently, you're always blown out by what others think of you or say, your hope might be in Christ to a degree, but it's really in the approval of man. Man. If money is always an issue and it's a problem and there's never enough and all that, and you're always worried about what you're going to do or how our ends are going to meet, I, I think your hope could be as a believer in Christ to a degree, but it really sounds like it's in your ability to earn money and pay your bills. That's where your security's coming from. If you're always stressing and exploding over those things, just assess your life. You carry yourself in such a way where you have to have all the designer stuff and all that. You're all about image. It sounds like your hope is in yourself. And in the accolades and praise that you can get from others. You're a people pleaser. I'm not not shattering the idea that you can buy a brand name something. Some shoes just work better than others. But I'm saying that that's not the case in this consumeristic culture People buy expensive things and all that, especially when they can't afford them because they're trying to portray or project an image of themselves. And their hope is in how people will reciprocate and respond. Where's your hope? Who or what have you put your hope in? Is it in this nation? Is your hope in the next election, in the next person? Because it could be in Bernie, it could be in Hillary, it could be in Trump. Is your hope in earthly treasures? Bank accounts, portfolios? Look, nations rise and fall. Some of you can't even... You won't even consider the fact that that can happen in America. It is happening. That's reality. Nations rise and fall. I'm sure there were many, many Romans who thought, the Roman Empire forever, gone. America at its greatest height will never even be half of the magnificence of the Roman Empire. Never. And it's gone. And it stood darn near for a thousand years. We've been around for 250, 300 or whatever and we're almost done. Nations rise and fall. God appoints them and he removes them. All men are like grass who wither away. You, You can't put your hope in nations. You can't put your hope in politicians or others. Earthly treasures are devoured by moths, rust, and thieves all of these things that I've described are terrible things to put your hope in because they don't last they are perishable who or what then should we put our hope in I like what R.C. Sproul wrote the father raised Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit not simply for his own vindication but for us he was the first to be raised from the dead in this manner." being brought forth in a glorified state. But he will not be the last. Everyone, everyone, everyone who is in Christ will share in this resurrected glory. This is our hope. This hope is at the very heart and center of the Christian faith. May our hope, as believers, as Christians, be firmly planted in Christ and in his resurrection, which is our resurrection. He is coming for us. Maybe sooner than later. What a glorious day that will be, right? The question is, are you ready for his return?